0: Hello and welcome, Nate Pickowitz. Hello, welcome. Thank you. Nate, tell us everything that we need to know about you in 60 seconds.
1: Uh, Well, uh, again, Nate Pickowitz. I'm from uh, New Hampshire. I'm actually from Gilmonton Ironworks, New Hampshire, which is the town that I'm pastoring a church in. I'm married to my lovely wife, Jessica. We have three children Um, and then church planted in my hometown back in 2013 and so that's been going for 10 years and uh, just seeing the lord's faithfulness uh, through the ministry and uh, in addition to the local ministry the lord has allowed me to to write and to speak and and just uh, be able to contribute uh, hopefully to the vitality and growth of the church at large so i uh, very pleased very thankful to god and his all of his kindness yeah yeah very
0: good uh, every time I speak to you, I, I I always come away impressed with how busy you are. And actually, it was you that put me onto Reagan Rose with the uh, productivity podcast, and good. that's been a really helpful result. So it's good to hear that you're as busy as ever, Nate. Yeah. So take us back to the beginning. How did you first become a Christian?
1: Yeah, I was raised in a Christian home, so I went went to church as a kid, heard the gospel, and you know, I think when I was younger, I I thought I was a Christian. But then I had a season of time, you know, sort of a desert days, you know, season where I was unrecognizable as a Christian. I had walked away. But then later on, when I came back to the Lord in my 20s, looking back, I, I think I was uh, either a false convert or I just didn't know what I was doing. Um, but anyway, heard the gospel. My my At the time, my girlfriend who became my wife, we started going to church together. And both of us heard the gospel, and she had converted from Roman Catholicism, and she became a Christian. And I had, you know, remembered back to my childhood, and I, I understood the basics, but really put my trust in the Lord, um probably in my early 20s. And really understanding, you know, certainly my fallen condition, but understanding that Christ was was my Savior, my advocate, my—I used to say he was my lawyer. You know, he stands before me and the Father and argues— uh, for my justification. So that all didn't make sense to me until I was in my 20s. So uh, by God's grace, um, probably about 24, 25 years old is when I came to Christ and then uh, later on got into ministry over time.
0: Yeah. Well, tell us about that. I'm
1: really interested to hear how that happened. When did you feel the call to ministry and then what happened next? It's funny because, you know, you can look back over your life and you can almost see like chapters, you know, you can see how God divides things up. But um, I, I started to study the Bible. I was a Christian you know, through the two thousands and was studying my Bible really for the first time, again, if that makes any sense, like to really study and know it and I just felt this desire to just want to know the scriptures, and then I also felt a desire to want to teach other people like i was I was doing men's ministry, and is like I just had this insatiable desire to to help other people to know what I was learning um and i I look back now and I realize that my call, I believe, started there. You know, developing a love for the church, a love for men and ministry, a love for teaching, a love for ex- exposition. So that really began. Um, and that was probably around 2009 or so. And then um, just worked through the process of I, I just invested in my church. I began to serve everywhere I could. Um, anytime they asked me to teach a Bible study, I just did it. Sunday school, I, I just taught. I just did whatever they want me to do and made my whole life about just serving. And then over time, they began to discern and I began to discern that maybe there was something else going on, that maybe, maybe the Lord was calling me and my family elsewhere, uh, into other kinds of ministry. And then it really wasn't until probably about t- 2012, uh, I finished a, a degree and got ordained through our denomination. And then again, in 2013, our sending church sent us out, me and three other families, uh, to go plant Harvest Bible Church in Gilmanton. So, you know, I think, I think a call to ministry, I don't think you always know in the in, in the moment, like right away, but I think that when you submit yourself to your local leadership and if they can identify that kind of a thing in you, it just begins to validate, um, you know, certainly the Bible says that it's a good man, a good thing for a man to, to desire to do. You have to desire ministry, um, but at the same time, you know, uh, it was helpful to have a lot of insight from other people who knew me and uh, could help me discern whether this was a, a good thing to do or not. So, and by yes. God's grace, it was. Yes. And what was you doing for a career at the time? And what do you think you would have ended up doing if you didn't go into ministry? Oh, my goodness. I was doing financial services. I was selling insurance and investments. And my big plan was to go and become a very successful businessman and then just give a lot of money to the church, uh, which was a great plan. But it wasn't the Lord's plan. So uh, I don't know what I would be doing if I wasn't in ministry I don't want to think about that because <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like I was built for this. I feel like the Lord, the Lord's been grooming me in my life and my, my gifts and the things that I care about. I just feel like this is what I was supposed to do. And I just can't imagine doing anything else, even on hard days, even, even the worst day in ministry is better than, you know, an average day knew anything else I was doing. So, um, I really feel like this is where I'm supposed to be.
0: Yeah. Brilliant. You've already written some very helpful books over the last few years. And I'm excited to see that you've added another in Christ and Creed.
1: Tell us about this new project, Nate. Yeah, Christ and Creed. Um, this was a I will say this was a lot more than I bargained for originally. Uh I had I had met with Christian Focus. Um, they were interested in just talking about book projects, and I was excited to talk to them because they're a great publisher. Um and I just had this idea because I was I was interested in the Creeds um but i i didn't know as much and i don't think when i talked to other people that they knew as much as they wanted to know and it was almost like a like a mysterious thing and you know it was like this thing that was existing over there and so i just had this idea wouldn't it be great if i could just take you know sort of the you know the early ecumenical you know popular creeds and you know explain them and do an introduction but then also explain line by line and i was trying to find a resource that did that and there are great resources on the creeds. You know, Carl Truman has a great book called The Creedal Imperative. That's a wonderful book. Uh, Justin Halcomb has uh, Knowing the Creeds and Councils. And there's lots of books that are like that, but they're general introductions and they're overviews. I couldn't find something that was line by line unless I went to academic works, which were three, four, 500 pages thick and very, um, I mean, it's a different language. I mean, scholastically, very, very hard to understand. Um so there was just no, there's no medium. And so I just threw myself into the project thinking it would be simple. Uh, realizing this, I've written seven books. This is the hardest I've ever studied for anything um, because so much rides on it. The doctrine is so important. And uh, it was just, uh, it was, it was a challenge, but I'm really happy with how it came about. And I'm hoping it's going to, it's going to help a lot of people to just get themselves, get their toe in the water, so to speak. For just reading the creeds, understanding the basics, and then giving them resources at the end so that if they want to keep on going, they can study more and they'll go beyond even my understanding. They'll go beyond me, which is the goal.
0: Yeah, brilliant. You, you mentioned that this is your seventh project that you've worked on. What's the criteria? I can imagine that you could write all day long and you could, you know, you must have lots of books inside you. What, what is the selection process for you? What, what is the criteria for you to, 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 to really become engaged and actually to, to take on
1: a project? Yeah, I keep a, I keep a diary, like a real diary, not a schedule, but a diary, (laughs) like a journal. Uh, it's an off, off recording joke there. Uh, I keep a journal of all the different ideas that I have. I've probably got 50 ideas in my head somewhere. But what I try to do is I, I try to write a book that doesn't already exist somewhere else. Like I look for gaps in the general church understanding. So, you know, I've had other ideas before where I say, I'd love to write a book on this. And then I find somebody who's written a book just like that. And I say, great. And I actually praise the Lord and I buy that book. And then I take the idea off the table. I don't try to duplicate someone else's idea. Um, so I just look if, you know, if the idea is missing and I can't, I can't find doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but if I can't find it and it's not accessible, then I'll, I'll kind of put that in my mind and say, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do that, you know? So all the books I've written so far, were, were at least my attempt to scratch an itch somewhere and just try to be as helpful my goal is to be as helpful uh, to the church as possible I'm not going to win any kind of awards academically or nothing like that if I can just help the church understand doctrine and history and just the basics I feel like uh, that's a good a good ministry to have so like I said I couldn't I couldn't find what I was looking for with this content again doesn't mean it doesn't exist but I couldn't find it so that's why I said I wanted to go and try to do it yeah. now, I realize why not a lot of people do this because it's it's a lot of work and uh you you have to there's so many different rabbit trails you can go down with this study and uh and many have and so it was a challenge to keep it reined in but uh yeah. i I also uh, to answer on another side of it, I have to really like the project like I have to be excited about it so a lot of times what I'm studying personally and the things I get excited about. That's what I want to write about. I get excited about the Puritans. I write about the Puritans. I get excited about Bible study, I write about Bible study. Um, so I have to just really enjoy it. Uh, I don't like trying to write from a, a laborious process. I want to have fun doing it. So uh, it's very simple in that regard. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. For anyone unfamiliar with what the creeds are, just explain that to us and why are they so important and as an important tool for us with real value for every Christian?
1: Yeah. So the word creed itself, it comes from the Latin. It's credo and credo just means I believe. So a creed is any short statement of belief. Uh, now there are different lengths of creeds, but it could be something as simple as one small phrase. You know, in the Bible, Jesus is Lord. That's a creedal statement, really. Um, or it could be something very long. The Athanasian creed is 42 lines long. So, but it's really just a, it's just a summary statement. Um, you know, taking Uh, taking a a synthesized approach to understanding a larger truth. is just a way to to explain or I should say declare basic truths about what you believe. That's a creed. Yeah, yeah.
0: And what's the difference between a creed, a confession and a catechism?
1: Yeah, so a creed, again, is a shorter statement of faith. A, uh, A confession is when you take that basic statement of faith and sort of blow it out. It's a more systematic approach. And a lot of times you find that confessions, um, they're a little bit longer, they're more in depth, but then a lot of times you find that they, they can be sort of um, tailor fit to, I don't want to say denominational, but sort of individual second tier kind of thing. So, you know, Presbyterians have a, cate- a catechism, Baptists have a catechism, or excuse me, a confession. Um, and so it's a way to sort of get more into the weeds of the doctrine that you believe. But again, uh, confessions can be can be longer or shorter. And then a catechism, I always interchange in those words. A catechism is just a, an explanation of creedal information or confessional information, but you do it in question and answer form. So a, a catechism is a way to teach through the content versus just, you know, rote memorization of long paragraphs. It's a question and answer to just stick it in your mind. So all these are ways to express our belief and affirmation of biblical truth and then a way to, to solidify in our minds.
0: Yeah, yeah. And what are some of the best known creeds? And are there any that we actually need to be careful of?
1: Yeah, I was thinking, you told me you were going to ask that question. I was thinking about which ones to avoid. Um, and I, I, off the top of my head, I can't think of them. You bump into certain you know, creeds over time that were rejected by the church as heretical. And obviously, you have to watch out for that. But it, in asking that question, it actually throws some light onto the other question, which is, what are the, the most well-known creeds? Well, the reason all those are well-known, and that would, in my mind, be the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the definition of Chalcedon, which actually exp- explains parts of the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. Um, the reason those are so well-known um, and, and so well-liked is because those explain basic truth. And when people can wrap their arms around basic truth of Christianity, they can spot the errors And so when if you do see a creed or a confession or a statement that's heretical, if you know your Bible and know your doctrine, you can spot it and root it out and say, that's not true. This is true. So knowing the the good ones actually will help you spot error. Yeah, yeah.
0: Like you said, one of the things that I love about Christ and Creed is how you take the time to unpack some of the better known creeds and also then look at their history. Arguably, one of the best known creeds is the Apostles' Creed. What do we know about its history and why do
1: you think it's the most well-known? Yeah, it's funny because we don't, we don't really know much about its history. Uh, the, the old myth, the reason it's called the Apostles' Creed is because there was a myth circulating in the early years that, Before the apostles all set out to do their missionary journeys and traveling to the world, that they all met together and each of them wrote one line of the creed. So that's why it's called the apostles creed. It's probably not true, but it's a nice idea. And that's where the name comes from. But what it's, we mostly think that it comes from the old Latin creeds right around the second century. And what these were, uh, what this one was, was a baptismal creed. So before a person was baptized, they would recite the, this creed or a version of this creed. And it just highlights the basic information, the, mo- the most boiled down essential truth about what makes a Christian a Christian. And so I think because it was so well used for baptism and for affirmation, it just took on a life of its own and it became so well used and well liked. I mean, really, whether you're Roman Catholic, Protestant, um, any any person who ad- adheres to any form of Christianity these are the absolute basic essentials in terms of, um, of Christian doctrine. Now, We would probably argue that there's more to add to that. But this is the absolute core of who God is, who Christ is, who the spirit is and beyond. So uh, I think that's why it has such staying power, because of the power and the, and the essential nature of it.
0: Yeah. One of the potentially problematic lines tells of Christ descending to hell. Tell us about that, Nate.
1: Yeah, so uh, that's a hot topic right there. And I think the reason it is so debated is because, you know, the you know the creed is older, but then you fast forward about 500 or 1000 years and people start to use the creed to say things it doesn't say. And one of the things that we as Protestants bump up against with the Roman Catholic doctrine uh, is that somehow Christ descended actually into hell to argue and fight and, and wrestle for the souls of those who were in hell. Uh, there's no biblical proof that Jesus ever did that, and it actually goes against what we understand the gospel to, to mean, that Jesus Christ, when he said on the cross, it is finished, that there's no mm-hmm. need to go and then do something else for somebody else anywhere. So we would argue on a doctrinal stance that Jesus did not do that. But, but when you look at the actual language, um, it actually refers not to him going to a literal hell, but some some versions of the creed actually say he descended to the dead or he descended to Hades, referring to him going into the ground. It's referring to his burial. So it's a it's a figurative way to say he, he died, went into the ground, into the depths of the earth, into Hades, into hell, and then rose again the third day. So it's actually not as controversial as we think it is if we really understand the point, the meaning of that phrase.
0: Yeah, yeah. The other line that's caused some issues is the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. <laughs> Tell us why we need to be cons- as concerned as we might
1: be when we read that, Nate. Yeah, again, another instance of of uh, a tradition, the Catholic Church sort of drawing that away and, and placing meaning that's beyond that. The Roman Catholic Church, Catholic just means universal. So when the Roman Catholic Church talks about themselves, they just mean the universal Roman Catholic, you know, capital letters, but Catholic, again, just means universal. So when the treatise talking about uh, a reference to the Holy Catholic Church, the community of the saints, it's referring to all believers everywhere for all time, the universal Catholic Church. So it's just a statement of all believers everywhere for all time that we believe that there is a, a bride of Christ, a community of believers that Jesus gave his life for. And so, again, not as controversial as we might think it is. Yeah.
0: Yeah, And these are all issues that you pick up on and, and obviously talk about in a lot more detail within the book as well, right? So another well-known uh, creed is the Nicene Creed. What do we know about that its history? And, and tell us about this one, Nate.
1: Yeah, so that actually has a longer, uh, more storied history. That's It's a fascinating story. Um, but the long and the short of it is that um, in the early 4th century, uh, a bishop uh, or a teacher, I should say, named Arius began teaching what later became known to be heresy. And he was approached by his bishop, which is uh, uh, Alexander of Alexandria. Having your name and and your city in the same thing is pretty cool, I guess. But uh, Alexander (laughs) confronted him and it just began to unravel to the point where Constantine, who was the new emperor of the Roman Empire, you know, wanted to maintain unity and peace but also make sure that, you know, orthodoxy was established. And so he convened a council of, we think, about 220 bishops from all over the known world. And they came together and they began to to talk about just a essential doctrine. Um, and then within that, examine the, the doctrine that Arius was teaching. And, and the key issue was, well, who is Jesus? That's really what this is all about, is the identity of Christ. Um, is Jesus simply a man? Who was especially graced by God. And Arius was, you know, famous for saying that once was a time when he, Jesus, was not, that somehow Jesus had an origin, he had a birth, and that he came into being at some point. And the Nicene fathers rejected that. And they evaluated scripture, they evaluated how they've always understood that scripture. And basically by the end of the council in three twenty five, they deemed Arius to be a heretic. And then they wrote what was called the Creed of Nicaea, which elucidated all that doctrine. And then later on in a different council, uh, they revised and sort of modified. And so what we know to be the Nicene Creed is actually a later version of the Nicene Creed. But but that's really it is, you know, who who is Jesus and how do we understand the person, the being of Jesus? Um, is he just a man or is he God in human flesh? And that was where they landed. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. And interestingly, a lot of Jehovah Witness doctrine actually points back to Arius. Is, is that right?
1: Yeah. So again, every, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but every major heresy that, that is, has impact always attacks the nature, the personhood of, of Christ. Uh, it's interesting because they won't oftentimes go after the father or even the spirit, but they will go after the son because it impacts the gospel. And that's, that's a tool of the enemy. So, um, yeah, this is, it's, it's still very popular. Funny story. I was just recently at a bookstore, a local bookstore, and they had, they, it was called the, um, the arian uh bible the arian christian bible and i'm like what is that and i pulled it off the shelf and it was yeah 1700 year old heresy reprinted and it's like it's still circulating and it's like my goodness this just won't go away but uh yeah it's not it's not orthodox theology at all yeah Yeah. why is begotten such an important word yeah begotten that was one of those reasons why just my brain was about to explode studying so much because there's there's so much meaning and power in words. And when we talk about go- begotten and we see the, the word in the Greek monogenes, only begotten, um, many, many times in scripture, and it's referring always to the son of God, to Jesus. Um, now we understand in just a general sense that, you know, we can beget. You can have a son who's begotten of you. And it just means he's just like you coming from you. And there's a connection there. It's a, a connection of a father to a son or a parent to a child. But when speaking of Jesus, it's a, a term that relate uh, that discusses the relation between the Father and the Son, and we understand that this use of the word "begotten does not mean that Jesus has an origin, but rather he is not only only begotten but eternally begotten of the Father, meaning that his his relation, I think about his connection, but it really is his relation to the Father is eternal. And always there. So for as long as the father has been the father, which is forever, the son has always been the son begotten of the father. So it's a it's a a term. We also talk about it as filiation is the more technical term for it. Uh, But it's the fact that Jesus is not created. He doesn't have a birthday, but he's always been begotten from the father from the beginning of time. So it's it's a an expression of relation, eternal relations of origin
0: yeah really helpful thank you nate like the apostles creed mentioning the word catholic which can sometimes be misunderstood like we've spoken about the nicene creed speaks about the apostolic church and with a growing momentum from the the new apostolic reformation this is another term that may become misunderstood how should we
1: understand what they mean nate yeah so when the Creed talks about uh apostolic um they don't mean some kind of a new movement they you know nothing in in Christian doctrine ever really advocates for anything new. Any, If you have new Christian doctrine, you got to be really careful because we don't want new. We want to recover what God has already said. But when it talks about apostolic, what it really refers to is authority. Um, the apostles' teaching, and that comes from Acts 2.42, the early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching is summed up in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the apostles' teaching is Derived from the teaching of Jesus. So Jesus' teaching would, which is encompassing the entire revelation of scripture, um, is, is then, uh, derived and, and pulled into the apostles teaching. So it has to do with the authority of biblical teaching. So when we ourselves as Christians submit to the apostles teaching, we're submitting to the authority of scripture, which is then derived from the authority of Jesus as the author of the Scriptures. So. All it is is a is a a hearkening back to and a leaning and a submission on the authority of the apostolic teaching of Scripture. It is not a new authority with new apostles. I don't believe and I don't think anything supports that there are new apostles today.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We know that a believer's baptism is the outworking of an existing faith and the actual baptism itself isn't salvific. How should we then understand the creedal statement? I acknowledge one baptism for remission of sins.
1: Yeah, so that was another tricky one, too, because, again, people take that to mean different things that they want it to mean. But if you look at the doctrine of baptism in the scriptures, um, you see that there is certainly we're commanded to be to be baptized, which is an outward sign of something that's taken place. Um, But then if you look at places like Romans chapter six, Romans chapter six, verse four says that we are buried with him, Christ, uh, through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. It's referring to a spiritual baptism, and a spiritual baptism has to do with the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And the only way that the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit can happen is if a person has been given new life and new life in Christ. And new life in Christ means the repentance of sins, of turning away, but also the forgiveness of sins that we receive because of the work of Christ. So, All the doctrines wrapped up in salvation are sort of summarized here. Baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Um, It's not the baptism, the physical baptism that earns forgiveness. That's not how we understand it, but rather that there is something that's taken place within us, a, a regenerative, a born again baptism of the spirit, which signifies that we have been changed, we have been forgiven, we have been justified, and we have new life in Christ. So all of that, I believe, is bound up uh, it's a signifying statement of a grander reality. Uh, it is not what it's not baptismal regeneration at all. Yeah. So make that, yeah. make that very clear, you know? Yeah, yeah.
0: So helpful. Thank you very much, Nate. Brilliant. We're often asked by believers, what are the hills to die on when it comes to the Christian faith? Martin Luther, I think, would hold up the Athanasian Creed as that answer. Tell us why that's so, Nate.
1: Yeah, I think the Athanasian Creed, I think one thing we have to, to pay attention to is that. When you go, and I explain this in the book too, but when you go from the Apostles' Creed to the Nicene Creed and then you, all, you end up in the Athanasian Creed, all these early church creeds, they build on each other. And it, it's happening over several hundred years. We think the Athanasian Creed was completed at least by right around 550 was it, the latest possible date, but it could have been created as, or written as early as the, the 400s. But what this is, is this is sort of the culmination of everything that's taken place before. And so, by the time you get to the Athanasian Creed, you have articulated the the core and essential doctrines of the faith. So, so things like the the Trinity and the deity of Christ and the hypostatic union of Christ, um, the the deity of the Holy Spirit, uh, the the doctrines of salvation, the the necessity of faith, um, the authority of the Scriptures. These are all non negotiable uh, uh, essential doctrines, and those are either elucidated or alluded to in the Athanasian Creed. And so certainly we can keep on talking about more doctrines, but at a certain point, you really can't talk about less. Um, and that's really the Athanasian Creed really is a, a stalwart um, a declaration of Christian truth. So I think that's why Luther loved it so much is because it was so expansive and so helpful. And it's beautifully written. I mean, there's just phrases in there that are just so, so lovely. And uh, you, you really can't do much, much better. Of course, I say that, then you can go read the rest, Westminster Confession. That's pretty good, too. So, um, But no, it's, just a, it's a statement of essential Christian truth, really. Yeah. As
0: you mentioned a little bit earlier on, one of the purposes of creed is to unite believers in an orthodox understanding of scripture to help fight against heresy. As you worked on this project, were you surprised how many of the heresies that they were fighting against 16 or 1700 years ago are the same things that we fight against today, repackaged and relabeled, but essentially the same things?
1: yeah you're right. you're right and that's what happens I mean Satan has no new tricks and and even not even just doctrinal heresies but even even what's going on in the world today, like even right now the transgenderism movement and sort of this uh uh this this confusion between sexes i mean you go read the the Gnostic Gospels and that's being advocated as a doctrine back in the second and third and fourth centuries, so again, even on a cultural basis there's nothing new but but that's why the creeds are so helpful to us because it, it articulates core essential doctrine. And it's there oftentimes, especially with, um, the Nicene Creed and the definition of Chalcedon, those are creeds and, and documents that come out of addressing heresy. There were four major heresies coming out of four major councils that produced those two statements. And so if we're, if we're familiar and can, and, and understanding what these issues are and what the, what the correct understanding of doctrine is to be, then you can root out the heresy, the oneness Pentecostal movement, talking about the, the oneness of Jesus, the Jesus only movement, that there's modalistic tendencies. And we'll talk about that later, I'm sure. But it helps you identify and root out and correct heresy today. So I think a lot of times the reason heresy gets so prominent is because we forget, we don't know our history. We don't know what the Bible teaches. We don't know what the church has always believed. And if we know that, it just helps us to be able to evaluate these things more carefully. Yeah. yeah.
0: There are many today who, in the name of sola scriptura, completely reject, at any and all historical Christian documents out of the fear of abandoning the Bible. We, we might hear phrases, like you mentioned in the book, where no creed but the Bible or no creed but Christ. What would you say to
1: these people? Why might they be missing the point a little bit, Nate? Yeah, I think a lot of times when people push against learning creeds or confessions or anything like that, as I like, I think it's a genuine concern and I think it's a good concern that you don't want to go beyond Scripture. You know, you don't want to have some other authority. And again, that we see that in other traditions as well. You know, with the Roman Catholic Church having other other pools of authority more than the Scripture. And so I think that people push back against the creeds because they don't want to sidestep Scripture, and we never should. But here's the thing: Uh, a a good creed is always in submission to the Word of God, and always summarizes correctly what the Bible teaches. If it doesn't, then it's not a good creed, and it should be rejected. But good creeds, the reason the Nicene Creed is a good creed, is because it articulates what the Scriptures teach, and it helps us to articulate and understand what the Bible is actually teaching, the doctrine. So. I don't think we have to be afraid of them as long as we test everything against the Word of God. The Word of God is the standard. So if anything you write or preach or say, I mean, preachers do it all the time. We don't just read Scripture from the pulpit. We we give sermons. Well, how do you know if it's a good sermon? Is it relying on and submitting to the Word of God? So creeds are no different, and I think we're actually missing out a little bit. And my conviction of that has grown, too, having since written the book. I think that we're missing out if we don't engage with these because— um, we want to understand uh, what other believers have have readily understood, and we want to join them in understanding and The spirit of God was working even for you know fifteen hundred years ago was working to illuminate their minds as well, so why would we not also you know uh, pool their uh, understanding of the of this the doctrine and of the scriptures for ourselves i just don 't think it's uh, we don 't want to be ignorant uh, of what 's been done before, so uh, I think cautious uh, proceeding is helpful but i think creeds really do help us quite a bit
0: yeah in your new book you actually give us a bit of a brief overview of how you were disconnected from any knowledge or understanding of the creeds Uh, tell us about that nate
1: yeah so i grew up not i mean my my mother and my wife and a lot of people that grew up in a roman catholic church they recited the apostles creed and they recited even parts of the nicene creed so it was sort of bred into their understanding as kids, but I never had that. I never knew any of these things. I don't even think I heard about the Apostles' Creed until I was in my 20s, early 30s, um, which seems kind of weird, but that's just what it was. So for me, I came into this um, vaguely familiar, but not as familiar. And it wasn't really until I began to, to pastor a church where I was looking for ways to communicate doctrinal truth. And I love studying theology. I've been studying systematic theology for probably 15, 18 years, so for me you know looking for what did the early church say about this you know even just down to how do you explain the nature of christ how do you explain the trinity well the creeds give us language for that so um i wanted to find orthodox ways of expressing truth and so when i began to familiarize myself with the creeds you know it was just like a it was like you've discovered buried treasure you know so even now when i when i i have another book coming out uh, next year and i even go back and start pulling from the creeds even in that book because I want to get more of this language in there because I just think it's so helpful. So uh, I was just, I just missed it. I didn't have it. And so I don't want other people to have to go through the same thing that I went through. I'd rather just put this into people's hands and at least just give them a track to run on and give them an introduction to uh, to really helpful Christian uh, documents. I think it's going to be good for people.
0: Yeah, yeah. Does the Bible affirm the use of creeds? And are there any examples of
1: creedal statements in scripture? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the, the Bible never says, you know, make sure you learn your creeds. It doesn't do that. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> but we do we do see examples of, of creedal language. And, and well, what do you mean by that? Well, anytime there's a phrase that gets repeated, like, for example, the most simple one is the, the phrase, Jesus is Lord. And it comes in 1 Corinthians twelve three. No one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, things like that. And what we know is that in the early church, um, a, a popular creed was uh, Caesar is Lord. And so when the Christians were saying, no, no, Jesus is Lord, you could lose your life for that. But that one phrase became not just a statement of personal belief, but it became a statement of conviction. And it's in the Bible. Um, there are several others. And actually, I made note for myself because I, I wanted to remember them and get them correctly. But um, in Second 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. A lot of scholars believe that was an early creed that was uh, was written and incorporated into the scriptures. Another one comes in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, talking about how Christ died in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that actually, that verse is used in the early creeds as well. So, um, But more than just the examples, the Bible tells us to retain the standard of sound words. It tells us that everything that we say needs to be in accordance with the scriptures. Well, how do you do that? How do you articulate doctrine without quoting every single Bible verse that pertains to that doctrine? You would just spend all day long quoting lengthy right. Bible verses. And so what we do is we have shorter statements that encapsulate Scripture's teaching. So if I say to you, Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for sins, I could repeat that. That could be a a statement, a creed, if you will. But that's derivative of John 3.16, Romans 5.8, you know, on and on and on and on and on. It's summarizing Christian truth. And so the Bible tells us to do that. It tells us to retain a standard and conform our words to what is sound and teaching and so uh, it advocates for that, which I think is uh, is helpful for our understanding.
0: Yeah, over a period of time, words become hijacked and can lose their power or even meaning, can't they? Words yeah. like evangelical are thrown around and, and and no longer actually make the statement that they once did. When you look at the church today in twenty twenty three, do you think that case can be made for us needing to have another Reformation or at or at least some sort of new creed to affirm what it actually means to be a Christian?
1: Yeah, I think that's why the reformers, uh, they had, they used the phrase, separ- semper reformanda, always reforming. And I think that was the purpose of the Reformation. You know, when we read about the history of the Reformation, they weren't trying to do something new. They weren't trying to launch out, you know, and they didn't brand t shirts. This is the new Reformation. They didn't do that. <laughs> All they were trying to do is just bring the church back to the roots of scripture. And it's interesting because when you read a lot of the, Uh, protestant confessions they're just dripping with creedal language because they understood that that is our roots and the creeds are derived and in a a submission to the scriptures so i think we have to do the same thing which is again why i write books like i what i do because i want to just keep on reminding people to examine be bereans about it examine all of the teachings in light of scripture and see do they affirm do they submit themselves to the authority of the word of god so I think we need to be always examining, always reforming, Um, and maybe we need a a broader Reformation movement, but really what we need is for Christians just to read their Bibles, study the the scriptures, study the doctrine, study the history, and just examine their own life and their own churches and say, is this in accordance with the Word of God? Is this Mm -hmm. correct? And if it's not, that's when you start to make those kinds of changes and reform um but I think we 're always to be vigilant um, and uh, and contend earnestly for the the faith that's been handed down through the saints, so um, always reforming is is an important practice
0: yeah, in your new book, it's possible that you may be introducing some new words to to people and you've provided a very helpful glossary at the back of a book let's just take a couple of examples
1: of this, and you've, you've actually touched on one of those already. What is modalism? Yeah, modalism, it's also known as Sabellianism, And what that essentially is, is it's this teaching, the doctrine that God, and remember, God is one. We believe in one God, we would say, who exists eternally in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Modalism, however, denies the Trinity. Modalism says there's one God, so they affirm monotheism, but they believe there's one God who has morphed and changed in the person of the father, the son, the spirit. So the father became the son who then became the spirit. He manifests himself in different modes at different times. Um, and you know, I understand the desire to maintain monotheism, but a rejection of the trinity is unorthodox. You just can't have it yeah. because, you know, case in point, who was the, who was the son praying to in the garden of Gethsemane? Was his human side praying to his divine side? I mean, you know, how does that work? Well, it's not, it doesn't make any sense. And not only that, but it's, it's not true. Um, all throughout the scriptures, all throughout church history, we see that there are three distinct persons, even though there's one God. So, modalism and modalism is popular today, and one is Pentecostalism. And it's just, it's a rejection of biblical truth, but it's also a rejection of how we've always understood the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, it is, it is anti-Trinitarian. So, we, it must be rejected.
0: And although it might sound niche, it's actually popular teachers that a lot of people would have heard of that teaches people like T.D. Jakes, right? They, they're, that's they're right actually teaching this right
1: that's yeah. right yeah be careful yeah what about hypostatic union what is the hypostatic union yeah i the funny thing about all these words is that they sound so scary but uh, but they're really not all the hypostatic union is uh, is it's how we understand um the the perfect union of the two natures of christ um and so we know that jesus is fully and truly god and fully and truly human but how do those two natures how are they uh how are they united together and so there's been all kinds part of the the issue in the early church councils is how do we understand that relation between those two natures um we know that one nature doesn't swallow up the other one they don't divide they're not intermingled they're not conflated they're not confused so how do we understand that and so the hypostatic union is a is a way to to state the, the the the, the two natures of Christ united together. And one uh, one popular analogy that was used by the early church fathers was something called the soul-flesh analogy. And all it is is this. We as human beings, we have a body, a flesh, and then we also have a soul. Well, how how are our soul and our body united? Well, we don't know, right? But we do know that there is a distinction between the soul and the body. Never does your soul become your body or vice versa. However, God somehow unites those two things together in a perfect union that's not in contradiction, that's not in confusion in ourselves. So if God does that for human beings, then how much more so is that clear and and distinct with how Christ is united in himself with his divine and human nature? So again, we don't know exactly how it all comes about and how it is, but this is the best uh, articulation of how we understand the, the union of those two perfect natures.
0: Yeah, very helpful. Thank you, Nate. What are some practical ways that churches or even mums and dads can be using creeds to help in teaching
1: and discipling their children? Yeah, I think even just reading them together, um, you know, not letting your kids suffer the same faith that I did and not even hearing about them until I was in my 20s. I think just reading them is helpful. Um, I think, you know, getting them into you know a lot of church services, they will recite, you know, creeds or even parts of confessions I think just being aware of them and, uh, you know, buying this new book is always helpful. But, um, one of the things that I try to do in the book, and this is, I'm being tongue in cheek here, but I think this is true, um, is trying to look at the lines of the creeds and then do, do some Bible study and, and examine, you know, do the scriptures bear witness to this? So, um, if you can, if you can see scriptural proofs and then look at the line itself and make sure it's true, not only does it make you familiar with the truth of the creed, but it also forces you to become better at Bible study and defending and, uh, and uh, affirming what you actually believe to be true from the scriptures themselves. So I think just doing uh, Bible study, reading the creeds, even maybe even memorizing parts of them or learning them is helpful. Um, but just being familiar with, with the truth, because uh, there's always going to be error. And uh, you just want to have weapons and tools against that. Yeah.
0: One of the things that I love about your style of writing it is that it's actually written in a way that feels like you're personally discipling the reader. You can just pick it up and it doesn't matter if you're a new Christian or if you've been a a Christian for decades and, and you'll benefit from it's useful and helpful tone. Don't ever lose that Nate. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah.
1: Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, that's, I'm glad to hear you say it because that's, that's one of my goals is just to try to be as clear and helpful as possible in writing. I think sometimes books, especially on tough topics, can confuse the reader, and I just—I uh, think confusing the reader is a, is a sin. <laughs> you just can't do that. Yeah. Uh, so I just want to be as clear as, as possible. So if that if I'm successful in doing that, then I praise God for that.
0: Yeah, it reminds me actually during COVID, one of the highlights of of the lockdown—if you can have a highlight during that time—was when you used to do your men's Bible study group and you put it on Facebook and you were just recording it from your mobile phone. And I used to—he was going through John MacArthur's Systematic Theology, right? And that was just a. Yes yeah very very helpful so is that still on your facebook page oh maybe
1: i don't know (laughs) it's possible (laughs) Uh,
0: well if it is we'll put a link of it in in the description below as well so you can check that out yeah when they as always thank you so much for your time i always love um, getting the opportunity to catch up with you and to speak to you about your latest project before we let you go take a moment to let us know your closing thoughts and also let people know how they can keep in touch with you on
1: social media yeah, I am on social media. I'm on Facebook. You can find me, Nate Pickowitz. I'm also on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Nate Pickowitz. I- I've been kind of taking a break from social media a little bit lately. It's been a little bit toxic, and I-, I enjoy living a peaceful life, so I'm not always there, but if a person had to reach out to me, that's probably the best way to do it. Um, but I think, you know, overall, Dave, I appreciate your ministry. I, I appreciate the focus uh, of expositing the Word. And I think that that be, that's germane to who we are as Christians, to be examining the Scriptures. And so everything I preach, everything I write, everything I want to do, I want to submit everything in ministry back to the Word of God, to the authority of God in the Scriptures. So um, if I can do that for the next 50 years of my life, then I'll be thankful to go to heaven that way. And I think any ministry that focuses on that is a, a worthy ministry. So I want to in saying that I want to thank you for your labors as well, um, because if we can just do that as believers and submit to the word of God, I think we'll have a much stronger, healthier church and a a stronger Christian witness as well. So, uh, yes, and amen to that.
0: Amen. Thank you, Nate. Well, we're going to make sure that we grab the link to the book that's out now, and that'll be in the description below, along with your social media handles as well. Nate, thanks again. Hopefully we'll get a chance to catch up with you again next year when the next project comes out.
1: That'd be great. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it.